Welcome if you're joining us to the beginning of a new series. A new series and the, 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 the title for our series is, Is Life Worth Living? Is Life Worth Living? And we felt that this unknowingly, unwittingly on our behalf seems to be a very helpful response to much of what we're experiencing at the moment. I <clears throat> um, just want to thank the design team for coming up with our, the logo for the series. It's really beautiful. You can't see it so well because of the lights. Um, thank you, bro. Um, <clears throat> um, but just behind the wording, it's kind of like a crazy pattern of blocks and kind of bricks and it just looks scatty and it looks like a mess. And that's my interpretation of it. Um, I'm not sure what Mars and, and Raymond were thinking. You know what I mean? But uh, it, it, it helpfully just describes sometimes that, 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 that emotion that you can't communicate. Do you know what I mean? Of stuff just being in a mess. And in a concrete fashion in ways that you can't change, you can't do anything about, and you're having to come to terms with that. And so I'm going to ask you if you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and as you're turning there, a topic, just thinking about the theme for the series is life worth living, our first message is entitled Unfulfilled Expectations unfulfilled expectations. And again, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 through to 11. Now, what I'm going to do as you turn there is mention, I'm going I'm to be reading from the New Living Translation, which is a bit unusual for us. Um, I just found it very helpful going through the text because... Um, it just simplified what can be very, very difficult themes and concepts. So if, if, you, if you have a paper Bible and it's not the New Living Translations, I apologize. Um, and if you switched over from one translation to the ESV, because we use that so commonly around here, um, again, I apologize. But if you have a, like a, a mobile device and you can access the New Living Translation, on your phone or on your iPad, I think it will be quite helpful for you to do so. So, hopefully that's given you a minute to get there. Um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to start reading in chapter... Actually, I said I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read because we need help just in the reading of it, let alone teaching and listening. So, um, let me take an opportunity to pray. Father, thank you that you are here with us today, you're present by your spirit, you are the, omnip- the omnipotent, all-powerful God, you're the omniscient, all-seeing God, nothing escapes you, and you're the, you're the omnipresent God, you're here, present with us, and we're so grateful for that. Thank you, you don't just turn up, Lord, at the difficult times, like the emergency services, but you're actually always with us. And um, Lord, thank you for that, particularly with reference to those who, as Mark prayed earlier for, um, those who are going through turmoil right now, Lord. And even challenged, Lord, in their thinking. Some have been challenged to the point of communicating that quite verbally. Um, Yet, Lord, I think the question of his life worth living resonates with all of us at some point in our lives. And um, so, Father, we're asking as we're starting this series that you would be gracious enough to help us, not just in understanding, Lord, what you have to say about difficult circumstances, but how we then respond. Um, Lord, would you help us by your grace, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 through to 11. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless. 
everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the seas never fall. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome, beyond description. Now, no matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. My job is twofold today. Um, one, introducing a series is Life Worth Living. Um, and two, as well as <clears throat> introducing a series, my job also is to try to teach this first section, which I've entitled Unfulfilled Expectations. It's funny, as we approach the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it's a tricky book. Even as I was reading that, the impression you may get is, because it's in the Bible, everything that it's saying is true. Now, I'm not saying it's not true. But we have to be careful how we interpret everything that's in the Bible. Some have had the same problem with another book in the Bible. Anybody know the book in the New, in, in the book in the New Testament that people struggle with, or yeah, I should say historically struggle with? Anybody? The book of James. Thank you, Mark. I thought someone was going to say Revelation, you know. Some people don't even want to, ain't even trying to read Revelation, right? But um, it's, 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 it's the book of James. Martin Luther, who's the German reformer, actually initially said that the book of James is a book of straw. He, like, he was like, this book shouldn't even be in the canon of scripture at one point in his life. People tend to quote that and then they don't go on to say what he said afterwards because he then afterwards kind of took that back and said, hey, no, everything in the Bible is, is important. Um, but he struggled with that book because it seemed to contradict what Paul said about grace because it seemed to emphasize this whole thing about works, if you know the argument. And so it was, it's a difficult book to come to terms with. And in similar fashion, the book of Ecclesiastes is very much like that. It's very much like that. And it's funny because I've been in both books because we're teaching a module at school at LCM um, looking at the book of James. And here I find myself now having to wrestle. <laughs> like I'm having to wrestle with Goliath and Hulk Hogan. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Both at the same time in terms of trying to get my head around and, and even my heart around this. And, and it's funny because at the same time, the book of Ecclesiastes is very similar to the book of Job. In that the person that we're going to meet in this book, like Job, begins to look at things and begins to like really wonder, like, what is, what is this really all about? What is, what is life really all about? And in both cases... Ecclesiastes and Job, we see the Lord turn up, or at least his word turn up and respond to the issue. And I'm saying. <clears throat> now, most scholars agree that this book has two writers. It has, it has an editor who bookends the work. Right? And this is really important. He bookends the work at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. If you like, at the beginning of the book, it's like a preface 
preface, however you want to pronounce it, like a foreword, um, or if, or, or like a prologue, if you like. And then at the end of the book, you've got like an epilogue um, where he will comment or he will make conclusions at the end. So the editor starts off by introducing us to this person called the preacher or the teacher. And that's pretty much the main bulk of the book from verse 12 of chapter 1, right up to chapter 12, verse 7, the, mo- the like 11 chapters, if you like, of the book, is this main discourse. And then the editor will come back at the end, at chapter 12, verse 8, um, to the end of the book, and he will conclude with the epilogue. And he'll wrap it up. Now this is really helpful to understand, because this editor a common term for him is the frame narrator because he frames the book is really important because he's the one that's going to make sense of what may seem like nonsense <laughs> nonsense um, from the preacher the teacher the main discourse um, I, hope, I, I hope you guys are following me and the preacher slash teacher who in Hebrew is known as Koheleth, um, which is the, the word for Ecclesiastes. Um, he, the teacher-preacher, <clears throat> the, is the one who gathers or assembles the people in order to preach to them, to speak to them. And Ecclesiastes should sound quite familiar to us as a church because it's what we pretty much changed our name to, um, Ecclesia, because the word Ecclesia means those who are gathered those who are assembled, it's a New Testament, the New Testament word for ecclesia is church. And, ha- and we always say it, right, the church ain't the building, the church is the people. And it's the people gathered in order to hear God's word. So Ecclesiastes is a preacher, teacher, gathering the people, and fundamentally, I mean, it's, it's not even us who are the preachers who gather the church. Fundamentally, it's the Lord Jesus. And he's the fundamental preacher. And that's why we try to spend a lot of time in the Bible, because we want to hear what he has to say as opposed to maybe what we have to say. Because he is the original teacher. And hopefully we're going to see, us, we're going to see that, um, particularly as we get to the end of the message. And, <clears throat> and so, why are the people ecclesiad? or gathered, or assembled, if you like. Like, what is the big topic of discussion? I mean, it's got to be something that, that is important that's being talked about for people, one, to gather, and two, for someone to, to talk about it. Right? What's the topic of discussion? What is this preacher-slash-teacher going to talk about? What is the fundamental question on the table? Well, it's as we said, is life worth living? It's a a fair question, right? Surely it's a good question. Possibly one of the ultimate questions. Possibly your question. It's a good question. Is life worth living and, 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 and is that something that maybe you yourself are asking? See, I'm going to argue today that the teacher is overwhelmed with unfulfilled expectations. What are your expectations? Are you feeling let down? Are you feeling hard done by... Are you feeling empty? Do you, do, do you have unfulfilled expectations? See, and hard on the heels of those feelings, that type of thinking, like, is life worth living, leaves us feeling quite perplexed if there is no resounding response, if there is no answer. Feeling despondent 
that's the question that comes to mind. Is this life worth living? And the teacher is extreme in his response. He's extreme in his perspective and even his categories, using words like everything, nothing, never. Can you hear? Can you hear the extreme in his perspective? Everything, verse 2, he says, is meaningless. I'm like, bro, everything? Everything. Everything is completely meaningless. He says nothing changes in verse 4, in verse 7, verse 8, 9, and 10. He says never, verse 7, the sea is never full. Verse 8, we are never satisfied. Verse 4, the earth never changes. Like never? Never. His perspectives and his categories are very extreme. Can you hear that? You know when you speak to someone and, and they're just angry? All the time. They're angry all the time about everything. And everybody. How many of you know that person? How many of you are that person? Amen, I see. I see one hand go up. I think if we're honest, we all have been that person at some point in our lives. Or we will be, right? Unless you're, unless you're three years old, right? Like, like, little ba- like little children. But then again, you've got the terrible twos, isn't it? So even under freeze, can't say, have to say amen, yeah, that's me. I'm saying. (laughs) The Bible says we go astray from the womb. So the teacher seems, to put it mildly, the teacher seems to be discontented. And has a strong air of dissatisfaction. Disappointed, disgruntled, annoyed, irritated and exasperated to put it simply he's vex vex about life our section today is the our section today is the voice of the editor not the voice of the teacher preacher but this is going to be an introduction to what we're going to hear from this very troubled and dissatisfied individual uh, the editor today is describing the words of the teacher, which we'll begin, which we'll begin to hear firsthand from next week, verse 12. Pastor E is going to pick up in verse 12. And we'll go all the way to chapter 12, not Pastor E, but the teacher preacher. You're going to hear from different brothers, going to be sharing from the book of Ecclesiastes, all sharing what this teacher preacher is communicating. Pastor E actually will wrap up the book in chapter 12 for us, bringing the balance of God's word. We'll hear it pr- proliferated throughout, but we hear the conclusion of the matter. And you've got to wait for the conclusion of the matter because I think it's going to prove to be really helpful. <clears throat> but interestingly, <clears throat> the main speaker, not today, today's the editor, the main speaker, it's argued, isn't actually the teacher that we're going to hear the main bulk of, of argument from. It's argued that the main speaker is actually the editor, not the one who has the lion's share of the book. You know what I'm saying? The guy at the beginning, the frame editor, the editor, the guy at the beginning, the guy at the end. And this is helpful because there are many things that the teacher says that aren't always consistent. He says something like, it's important to get wisdom, but then he'll say, wisdom is useless. And it's the kind of thing you say when you're angry, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> You say things that don't make sense. They make sense to you, but they don't make sense to anyone listening. You know what I'm saying? And the thing is, there are quote-unquote apparent contradictions when they're not taken in their context. And without a helpful understanding of who is speaking, you could pick up Ecclesiastes and read one of the teacher's rants and then close the book at that point concluding that the Bible is full of contradictions. 
See, the Bible is a collection of books, different authors writing at different times, quoting different people at times. There are people that quote different people, apart from those that actually write the scriptures. You know what I'm saying? The, the Bible quotes the devil. Th- that should done the argument right there. You know what I mean? Helping us to understand we have to make sure who, we know who's speaking and, and why they're speaking. You know what I'm saying? We, ho- we hold that the Bible is infallible as long as you understand it in its context. That's why we say before, before you make accusations of contradiction, just make sure you know what you're talking about. And that's one of the reasons we're here, because we want to try and understand what the Bible is talking about. So this will be a 12-week journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, which falls under the category of what is called the writings. The writings. So this is pretty much the Old Testament in its categories. The Old Testament. So you've got the Torah, which is the first section, which is the first five books of the Bible, the, the books of Moses. And then you've got, if you go to the, the end, you've got the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im is those 17 books of prophecy, major and minor prophets. But then you've got in the middle section, and I'm saying the, the 12 books of history, and then you've also got the five books of wisdom, but also poetry and praise, which are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon or Song of Songs, which make up the Ketuvim, that second section of the Old Testament. And then you can see where um, the Babylonian exile strikes. And then when they come back from exile into the land, those books that come after, afterwards. The writings. Ecclesiastes falls into that section. Now thinking about this book recently has been very interesting for me. Some, often those, is a statement, some, this is from my musings, right? Some, often those who only have little, find comfort in the consistencies of life. You know what I'm saying? The consistencies of life sometimes are the only thing that makes sense to individuals that don't have much. You know what I mean? Glad to see the sun come up in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Glad for little water at the tap. Glad for little food in the cupboards. You know what I'm saying? Glad for the rain when it falls. Just grateful for the consistencies of life. But then you got those who, in contrast, have plenty. And I find that those who have plenty, they have problems and issues with things that people that have little hardly ever complain about. Whereas the sunshine is a blessing you know what I'm saying, to those who don't have much, to those who, you know what I'm saying, have everything, they're like, oh, it's so hot today, man. The sun's just roasting. I don't know what's, you know, I can't deal with this weather. It's so hot. And then the, the opposite is true when it gets cold. Right? Oh, this weather. Oh, can't wait till the sun comes out. And those consistencies begin to become a pain and a problematic for those who are overindulged. It's just an argument that I, would, that, that I would, don't quote me, you know what I'm saying? It's just what I think, you know what I'm saying? And possibly because the underprivileged subconsciously feel that the privileged, and I think this is the bigger point, that the underprivileged subconsciously feel that the privileged are actually happy, and the expectation on their part is that those that have the finer things in life are really happy, yet it could seem like those that have experienced everything have experienced everything and are still unsatisfied. What's my point? You know when you look at someone who's got everything and you just you sit there and you ain't got you ain't got nothing. I mean, who ain't in 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 in, in who, no one's really not got nothing. You know, you understand what I'm saying, right? In comparison to what some have got, oh my! And we look at the at what they got, and even though I might feel despondent in my in my circumstances, I look and I think, man. I know that there's, 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 there's hope out there, you know what I'm saying? Whether I, I give my life to attain it or not, to some degree I look at others who are quote-unquote happy, and I'm like, wow, man. 
I may not be fully happy, but there are those who are, those, there are, those who are experiencing life on another level, right? And I'm, I'm just saying, these are my musings as I've been thinking about Ecclesiastes. Reading this book has brought out the philosophical side in me. What can I say? And that's, that's my very rubbish way of trying to communicate that. Now, something else that has come to mind, because that really, really may not matter. Something else that has come to mind, and I suspect what I'm suggesting is as we go through this, you're going to start... You're going to start sitting there. What's the guy who sits there with his chin on his fist? The statue? Is it the thinking man? You know what I'm saying? I I suspect that that's what we're going to be doing as we're looking. Because we're not anticipating the things. We don't expect the Bible to say the things that you're going to hear the preacher slash teacher say to the the congregation, the, the people that assembled when he's speaking to them. You're going to be like, rah. Is that actually, that is, I never knew that was in the Bible. Is that in the Bible? And a part of this person's thinking is, you know what, I'm, when I tell you I'm fed up, and, 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 and this, is, this is the mystery for the, the person who, quote unquote, doesn't have that much, versus the person that has everything, we, we, the person who doesn't have much, because I have a lot. The person that doesn't have a lot doesn't actually understand that the person that has a lot actually is sitting there themselves thinking, what is this all about? And this caused me to think about a film that I saw years ago called Groundhog Day. Anybody heard of Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day. Um, Bill Murray, he plays this, 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 this character called Phil Connors. And Bill Murray is an arrogant Pittsburgh TV weatherman who finds himself in this time loop, repeating the same day again and again and again. And after indulging in hedonism and committing suicide numerous times, he begins to re-examine his life and his priorities. So in the film, and I'm going to show you a little clip, in the film, yeah, Pretty much, he, he, he goes to, he's, he's doing a job, and he goes to bed, and he wakes up, and he goes to, sorry, he arrives in his place, goes to bed, wakes up to go and do his job. He does a job, goes back to the place he's staying at, and he goes to sleep. When he wakes up, thinking it's the next day, it's actually the same, it's the previous day replayed again. And he's, and he's trying to figure this, have a look at the clip. Thank you guys for hooking up the sound, appreciate it. You ever felt like your life's going nowhere? You ever felt like no matter what you do, no matter what you try, not only is my life not moving forward, it feels like my life is on an escalator again, backwards, downhill. And... And when we're in that place, the temptation is to think, what is it I need right now? And all of a sudden, a number of things will tend to spring to mind. One of the things that tends to, to spring to mind is this issue of money. Like, I mean, you can even turn to a proverb that says, money answers all things. But does it? Well, Bo Derrick, as far as she's concerned, yeah, it definitely does. Listen to what she says. Bo Derrick says, Whoever said money can't buy happiness simply didn't know where to go shopping. (laughs) I think Marcus Pearson, he's done much better. He's fought this thing through a little bit more. I don't know if you heard of Marcus Pearson. He's the guy that created Minecraft. Listen to what he says. He says... It says, yet when when Marcus Peterson, creator creator of Minecraft, sold his gaming company to Microsoft for 2.5, and that's billion, not million, in 2014, it didn't give him the huge happiness boost you might expect. As his tweet from August 2015 showed, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. John Caldwell, you may not have heard of him, but you've heard of Phones for You. See him there with his stately mansion and his chopper, his helicopter. 
Like, like, like people with money, you normally, I mean, it's a big thing to see someone with a, fer- with a Ferrari, right? My man, he's taking, or what's this? You know, it man's on the next level. This is a next level thing. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, he's lit. Is it lit? Is that the term nowadays? He's lit, like, it's lit. My God, I'm like, listen to what he says. Notice, billionaire. Billionaire John Caldwell, founder of Phones for You, admitted on the BBC program on Britain's Spending Secrets that there are times when he would put his happiness level at just one or two out of ten. These are people with experiences that most of us never have and will never have. And and their thinking is not new as the preacher will remind us in verse 10, right? The main bulk of this book, the words of the teacher, sound like a collection of of pessimistic reflections on the world. Nihilistic even at times. Now, I was going to say, when it comes to the the philosophical side of the book, I'm sure Rich is really going to help us because I know this is one of his favorite books. Maybe Rich should come and done the intro. He's sitting there thinking, Rob, nah, you dropped the ball there, bro. Um, <laughs> hopefully not. But definitely this nihilistic perspective, this, this pessimism, nihilism is the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless, just like we heard a moment ago. Nihilism is the belief that all values are baseless and that nothing can be known or communicated. It is often associated with extreme pessimism and a radical skepticism that condemns existence. A true nihilist would believe in nothing, have no loyalties and no purpose other than perhaps an impulse to destroy, which eventually ends up in them destroying themselves. That's why you see Bill Murray in the film. Like, it's like, hey. I mean, imagine getting to the point where you're so messed up, you, you're happy to step in front of a train because you, you just, I need to end this, this ridiculous monotony. That's being consistent with a nihilistic perspective. And the teacher of this book, you know what? It seems like he's bordering on that. He's got serious beef with the world. With the world around, and he's and you know he's not holding anything back. This book is going to be a real blessing, hopefully for us as a church, because of the things that we've been experiencing. Not just recently, which, I mean, literally up to forty-eight hours ago, recently, you know, it's been ridiculously difficult. How do you how do you cope with your brother dying? Elijah. I mean, and multiple, and not just one, but multiple deaths experienced by close families related to the church. Even as I look around, I can see individuals whose lives, whose family have been affected by those that they've lost recently, but also specific members of our church. We've had a difficult ride over the past few days, weeks, months, and even years, if you tally it up. Personally, financially, emotionally, physically, relationally, marriage breakdowns, illness, parents not being able to see their children and vice versa and the list is the list seems to be quite endless hopefully this blunt direct and honest appraisal of life will prove to be a blessing to us over the next three months we know that we know that there's a a distinction between the two writers that i try to explain earlier because one speaks in the third person who is the editor the frame editor whereas the teacher the main bulk of the book speaks in the first person singular 
So let's go to the text. Remember, I, I said that I've got, got two jobs to do today. First was to introduce a series, which is what I've tried to do in some way. Now, let's try to get to the text. Um, who is speaking in verse 1 to 11? Help me. Thank you. Thank you, my sister. The editor. The editor. Remember, this is the prologue or the introduction. Verse 1. These are the words of the teacher that you will hear from in a, in a minute, in verse 12, actually, next week, the next 10 weeks, right? Who is he? Who is this teacher? The text says, who is he? He's King David's son. Now, that's very helpful, but it's not specific, right? Because <laughs> David had quite a few sons. Okay, there's, a, 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 there's still a bit more information on this teacher. He's actually someone who ruled in Jerusalem, so the teacher is a king who ruled in Jerusalem and was a son or a descendant of David, which makes things clear but still complicated because a son of David could mean next immediate biological generation, like his literal children, or it could mean distant biological offspring, right? So you could talk about David's son, but you're actually talking about David's great-great-great-grandson, still his son, quote-unquote. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, the commentators are split. Some say that it's definitely Solomon, right? Particularly because of how he describes his experiences throughout the book. He has great wealth, great wisdom, and many women. But there is also internal evidence that describes someone else that, could, that, that couldn't possibly be Solomon. It's hard to say who the teacher is with absolute certainty. But there is absolute certainty about what his message is. Verse 2, everything is meaningless. The word, the word meaningless means, can be translated vanity, empty, transient, or temporary, meaningless 30 times it comes up in this book i would say that it's funny isn't it? it's a bit of a contradiction if if, if if everything was so meaningless then why would you talk about it so much right it, sh- it should be meaningless you shouldn't have a point to make because everything is supposed to be meaningless do you begin to, to feel The tension. And as I, as I said, notice his categories. Intensely extreme. Everything. Like everything. Yes, everything, says the teacher, is meaningless. And just in case you thought he was exaggerating, the end of verse 2, completely meaningless. Now, that's a big statement. Not the kind of thing you say without having had some extensive experiences. And I suspect coming from you and me, it would would mean a lot. The temptation was for me to say, coming from you and me, that don't really mean nothing. No, that's not true. If you or me said everything is meaningless, then you're communicating something with reference to what you've experienced and what what you've had to endure, potentially suffered. Let's not minimize... Our pain and our difficulty and our struggles. And it would mean a lot. I mean, look, I'm nearly 50 years old, right? And I suspect you've lived life too. There are things that you've experienced, the things that I've experienced. I was at a, a 60th birthday party yesterday, late evening, um, after us. Um, Zebedee and Annie to forgive me because I never made it to the the birthday party, couldn't, try, couldn't, couldn't do everything. And so went to, I went to this because I had made a commitment, forgive me, I made a commitment weeks ago that I forgot about, you know them ones there. And, um, and so I was at this 60th birthday party last night. It was actually Pastor Ephraim's auntie, Auntie Doreen. Oh, there's Zebedee, Zebedee, sorry, bro. And I, I committed to, 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 to taking pictures at the, f- <laughs> sorry, man. Forgive me. I should. I never even sent you a text. I'm so sorry, bro. Um, at this 60th birthday, this lady, this lady, 
Trust me. This lady, it was her 60th birthday party and the lady never looked a day over 40. And that's, a, that's an understatement. And if you know me well, you know I can exaggerate. <laughs> but I mean, it's only Pastor E and Judith here can, can give me an like, give, give amen. Thank you. And, and the thing is, her daughter was there, who was a big woman. Like, big woman like, like I'm a big man. You know what I mean? And then not only was her big daughter there to prove that she was 60, her mum was there. Like, her daughter's grandmother. And I'm thinking, if she's 60, I looked at the grand, the grandmother never looked 60. Brother, am I... Pr- And this is, this is my point. It was mentioned by a few people as they... I wonder if we could just turn down the heat in just a little bit, please. Beg you do. One of, the, one of the things that struck me was there were people standing up and giving testimony about this lady and her life. And they were saying how amazing she was, how sharp and smart she was. But they kept on mentioning the fact that she'd been through struggles and even illness, and I couldn't tell specifically, but it sounded like she'd had serious illness that she'd dealt with. You know what I'm saying? Challenges, and, and the thing is, her experience, my experience, your experiences, you know what I'm saying? They're real. And some of, some of you have had it harder than some. And that's just focusing on the notice, on the difficult stuff, the challenges like unemployment and relational unfaithfulness and sickness and, and even death. Very, very low times we've experienced, right? But I suspect that these words coming from a king would carry another sense of, 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 of substance and importance. Coming from a king Right? Because as well as the lows, because of the lows, or as well as the lows, the king would be experiencing extremely high highs. Now we work with, some of us are very familiar with the lows, but maybe not so familiar with the very, very high highs. That's why I'm saying the king, is, his communication of what his experiences are like, we need to take note of. You know what I'm saying? And because although the lows can be very, very low, the highs for someone like a king can be ecstatically high. Maybe even to a height that a regular individual hasn't experienced. If we're speaking experientially, and I, and I know that the categories are not that simple. It's not just about having money or not having money. You know what I'm saying? But there are some things that, that poor folk, in comparison to kings, will never experience. Again, you, you know, you might have driven a Ferrari for an hour. But I know you don't own one. You know, you've got them, they call it adventure holidays. Red letter days. Where you do something that you, you know what I'm saying, you never ever get the chance to ever do apart from for an hour. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you can go stay at the Hilton. For a night. <laughs> Some rich people, do you know they permanently, they permanently, I can't even say it, because I can't get my head around it. They permanently rent rooms in a hotel. Like, I mean, the Hilton ain't even nothing. That's not even on levels. There's some people that rent Dorchester, somebody said. Now, I don't even know if that's really on levels. I think the, the hotels that are on levels, we don't even know about them. You, know, you and me don't know what they're called. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and they rent rooms in those types of hotels permanently. And the thing is, they, will set, they, they might say, yeah, we only know Premier Inn, isn't it, Mark? They only stay there. <laughs> they only stay there maybe a week in a year. And when they, but when they're not there, they're still paying for that. I'm like, talk about extremely high highs, quote unquote. Some... They rent that like you and me would rent a flat. Therefore, these words are very weighty coming from someone who has experienced the highest, 
quote-unquote, of highs as well as the lowest of lows. And then, because they're also affected by sickness and death and tragedy, right? And, and then he brings up an ancient but contemporary issue that we can all identify with in verse 3. Now, I am going to get through this within the next 10 minutes. He brings up an ancient but contemporary issue that we can all identify with, W-O-R-K, in verse 3. What do people get for all their hard work? Now, this is a theme that I'm not going to tackle. You, you say amen. This is a theme that will come up multiple times in this book. But notice, can you see he answers his own question possibly without knowing it? He said, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work? And what's the last phrase at the end of verse 3? Ah, under the sun. He answers his own question, maybe knowingly or unknowingly. This is partly the answer to the problem, isn't it? It's that the, the problem is he's seen everything under the sun. A part, of the prop, a, part, a part of the answer to the problem is the preacher's perspective. He's only seeing things from a horizontal point of view. He isn't looking at things from a higher, loftier, perfect perspective. He isn't seeing the big picture. That is from an ultimate vantage point. You feeling me? Plus, he obviously isn't reading the Bible. Within three chapters of Genesis, we see exactly where all the problems started. See, this is a part of the problem. We see a problem when we forget that there was a problem. Like, like, why would we even be surprised? Within three chapters of Genesis... We see the problem started, and we understand from that that we live in a fallen world. The New Testament speaks about this in Romans chapter 8, using the same word as translated meaningless. In Romans 8, where it talks about that creation has fallen, and we're waiting. We're waiting for things to change. We're living in the already, but not yet which essentially, this fallenness is what is being focused on in Ecclesiastes. Broken relationships, hard work. Not just work, because work was before the fall. Hard <laughs> work and death. But the preacher has forgotten. And, and we do that, don't we? When, we, when, when we're overwhelmed with our circumstances, we ain't, I ain't trying to read the Bible. I heard Damien Kyle say one time, a woman came in his office and said, Pastor Damien, I've got this terrible circumstance. You've got to help me. And he says, tell me what it is. She, she begins to tell him what it is. He says, okay, but look, you know, the Bible says, she says, don't tell me about the Bible. That's the Bible. This is real life. <laughs> <She said. laughs> but that's what we do. We forget what the Bible says when we're, when we're overwhelmed with our circumstances. You know what I'm saying? And... The preacher who's communicating his pain and his concern and his, the fact that he's nonplussed by his circumstances. But it would have been real helpful if he'd not just gone back to Genesis 3. It would have been like, I see. If he'd, it would have been really helpful because the problem's in Genesis 3, but the solution's in Genesis 1. Because it's in Genesis 1 that speaks not just about the creation, but it also speaks about the creator. He who is above the sun, the S-U-N. I wonder if this preacher is suffering from failed expectations. Failed expectations due to a lack of understanding and a lack of perspective. I wonder how often we find ourselves in the same place. A bit like Job, experiencing real trials, you know. I'm not trying to take, I'm not, there's no way today, and throughout this series, I suspect, we're going to take up, we're going to say that 
the trials we face are not, uh, they're minor. I mean, Paul does talk about the fact that in comparison to that which will be revealed, these things are light affliction. But that's in comparison to what will be revealed. It doesn't mean that what we go through is light. You know what I mean? But allowing those extreme circumstances to literally notice cloud or obscure our judgment. And that's what happens, isn't it? The sun is, the SUN is still shining. It's still shining. But the clouds obscure our understanding and our judgment. Notice the editor. That some say is the true teacher. So all the stuff we're going to hear is references, you know what I'm saying, and stuff we can identify with. But the argument is the true teacher is the narrator who just has a few verses at the beginning and a few at the end. You know what I'm saying? And, and he's trying to give real perspective. And he introduced us to the preacher's arguments, giving us four of the types of examples that the preacher is going to use. And this helps us to see the philosophical posture of the preacher and prepares us for what to expect from him. Here are the four examples, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and 7. Verse 4, generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. Some translation says remains forever. I find that never changes is a bit more helpful. He says people come and people go, but buildings, roads, meadows, trees, rivers, and streams, they still remain. Like, what's that all about? Like, which one is more important? Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets. Then it seems like the sun hurries around to its place to rise again. The wind, verse 6, blows south. Then it turns north, especially if you live in England, right? Yesterday, I swear it was snowing, it was raining, it was sunny, it was sleeting. The wind blows south, then turns north, around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Verse 7, rivers run into the sea. But wait a minute, the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers. How does, how does it do that? Through evaporation, right? The same water goes all the way back and, and then it comes back down into the, into the sea again. It's like, what is that about? Verse 8, everything... It's like he's looking at life. He's giving you four examples. Everything is just wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter what we, much we hear, we're not content. I mean, how many times do you have to look on Facebook to feel like you've had a good look? Verse 9. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Then he, he summarizes, the editor summarizes this unfulfilled expectation. Can you see it? He summarizes this unfulfilled expectation, verse 10 and 11. Sometimes people say, here is something new. And he raises your expectation, hypes you up, you know. Raises your expectation. But actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. They say that the only thing we learn from history is the fact that we don't learn anything from history. Verse 11, we don't remember what happened in the past and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. (laughs) Can you hear the, the the cynicism? Whether it's anthropology, the study of people, cosmology, stars and planets, oceanology, Oceanography, hydrology or evaporation or modern technology and information. You know, I heard a story about this old man and this boy in a boat. And we're nearly finished. The boy in a boat and the old man, they're out there. And the old man says, son, he says, look at these rocks. He says, you see the formation of these rocks over here? And the boy's like, huh? He says, Geology. He says, don't you know anything about geology? The boy says, no. He says, the old man says, if you don't know anything about geology, you've lost one third of your life. And they're going along in the boat a little bit more. And and the old man's like, son, 
Have you ever noticed a butter, a dragonfly? And where they be? Do you know how many times a, a dragonfly flutters its wings per, per, per second, let alone per minute? And the boy's like, no. He says, oh, you don't know anything about biology? He says, you've lost a third of your life. And then he goes on to chat about the stars and the planets. And the boy's like, mm, I ain't got a clue. You, know, you don't know anything about... about you know anything about cosmology? You've lost a third of your life. They eventually are in some water. A wave hits the boat. The boat tips over. And as the boat tips over, the little boy is swimming for the side, isn't it? And he looks back, and the old man's drowning. So the little boy turns around and says, Oh, man. My old man. He's like, don't you? He says, don't you know anything about swimming? <laughs> the old man can't even respond. So the boy said to him, well, then you've lost your life. Talk about a third of my life and me. You know, sometimes there are things that are important, but then there are some things that are much more important. And we may have great understanding of this physical world. Just speak to David Bellamy and Richard Attenborough or David Attenborough, his brother, whoever. That's all well and good with information below. That is under the sun. If you're a Christian and you've got insight into the Bible, hey, You may not have a chemistry degree or, you know what I'm saying, you've never been to university or. See, if, if we want wisdom that comes from above the sun, we need someone to bring it from there to us. Remember, I, I mentioned earlier, the writer of the main part of Ecclesiastes was David's son. John chapter 3, verse 13, makes reference to one of David's sons. And it's not the writer of Ecclesiastes. In John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son, the S-O-N, of man. The New Testament describes Jesus Christ as the one who came bringing that special revelation to us. There's a son that David had a number of years much later, this Jesus. Actually, his great, 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 great grandson. Jesus was the literal descendant of David on his mum and his dad's side. Or stepdad's side, obviously. Joseph wasn't his biological dad. <clears throat> and... He was, the son, he was the son of David, who was born a thousand years after David, yet is a king. And not just over Jerusalem, but king of the whole world. And he's also the one who, compared to Solomon, if he's the writer, was greater in wisdom. Who also came to this earth, fundamentally, to rectify the problem that we tend to overlook. The problem that was created by Adam. <clears throat> But it's funny, isn't it, as we, as we wrap up? It's funny that Jesus would fix the problem by himself having to experience the problem in a way that none of us have ever experienced before. It would mean him experiencing the very pain, suffering, and death that we experience, yet he conquered it. And in that sense... As dark as this book called Ecclesiastes may seem, there's actually light, much light for us in contrast. And that's what we're going to try our best to bring out over these next few weeks. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I'm going to ask the, the praise team, if they're still awake, to come and join me. <clears throat> and... just like to pray <clears throat> as they come and get ready. Would you pray with me if you feel like I do from time to time or even right now in your experience? And I'm saying, do you ever ask yourself, is life worth living? Is life worth living? And if... Could I, could I rudely say, you haven't really lived any kind of life until you've actually asked that question. 
until you've come to a point or a place in your life where you've said, you know what? And some of us will say it in our mind, and some of us will be so overwhelmed, we'll actually say it with our lips. You know what I mean? If you've ever felt like that, or possibly are even feeling like that, uh, would you just, would you pray with me? Um, Heavenly Father, even as we, as we say those words, um, we should be reminded that you are in heaven. We are on earth. Heavenly Father, we look at life sometimes and it just does not make sense. It's not fair. It's not right. And Lord, we want to cuss. We even want to swear when confronted with our circumstances here under the sun. And thank you, Father, that you give us the license. You give us the space and the opportunity to be able to communicate that. We know that. Not just because you are our Heavenly Father, if that means what we think it means, but because it's here in your word. And it's not just in Ecclesiastes. It's littered throughout the Bible where individuals get to that point where they're just like, I can't do this no more. And Father, we're just so grateful for license and opportunity to be able to to, to vent our pain and vent our hurt with intensity communicating where we're at. And Lord, like unlike all of the other religions, none of those have as its divine entity someone who literally experienced what we experience. That is so comforting, Lord. It's so comforting. Just like someone who's had cancer or experienced it in their family or even lost a family member. When they come and they sit down next to someone who's going through that, there's a comfort there. No words even need to be shared. And Father, when you invite us to come and to sit with you, imagine on your throne, that's what it says in the book of Revelation. That we get to sit with Jesus on his throne. We get to sit with you on your throne. And that, not just when we come home, but now Ephesians says we're seated with you in heavenly places. We can come, we saddle up next to you and say, Father, I'm hurting. This is horrible. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this experience. I hate this feeling. And because one, Jesus himself experienced it on the cross. Pain beyond that which we can imagine. And you as a father had to endure watching that. And not be able to respond immediately. Thank you that you are the God who can be touched by the feelings of our hurt and our pain. And um, we want to thank you for that. Lord God, this is not one of those messages that says, this is his, his, his five steps to freedom. His seven steps, his seven keys to your breakthrough. Saying that kind of message. And I don't think the Bible gives us that kind of message. Although it does, Father, give us a a delayed gratification. It will, a breakthrough eventually will come. And our joy will, be, will, will have a, a, a fullness that cannot, is, is inexplicable. And, um, and yet in the meantime, we wait. But thank you, we wait with your arm around us. And Lord God, this is the only message that will resound and make sense to anyone who's hurting. There's no close second. And Lord, we can be encouraged by that today. Encouraged 
greatly encouraged, Lord, by that today. In the midst of our pain and our suffering. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.